The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Kim Bearden. Kim is the author of Crash Course, The Life Lessons My Students Taught Me. Uh, During a career that has spanned nearly three decades, Kim has taught over 2,000 students and has been involved in virtually every aspect of education. In 2007, she co-founded the Ron Clark Academy, an internationally acclaimed middle school and educator training facility in southeast Atlanta, which Oprah has called the best school in America. So in her new book, Crash Course, Kim shares the tools she uses to connect with students in a way that motivates and inspires and weaves in thoughtful and entertaining tales of students past and present as she reflects on key moments in her personal and professional life. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Kim. Thanks for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Well, I have to say that's quite a testimonial from Oprah, which Oprah has called your school the best school in America. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's quite an honor, quite an yeah, honor. That's very exciting. All right, so today we're going to be talking about your book, Crash Course, The Life Lessons My Students Taught Me. And uh, can we purchase that book online, bookstores everywhere? Yes, bookstores everywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere where books are sold. Okay. All right, so Crash Course, The Life Lessons My Students Taught Me. What are some of the life lessons that your students taught you? I mean, you've had a lot of experience, 2,000 students, three decades of teaching. What do we need to know about your students? (laughs) Well, you know, what I did is I tried to capture, there were so many stories, so many things that resonated with me over the course of my life, experiences that I was going through, challenges, and through it all, I would look at students and see how they handled resiliency, you know, how they were able to bond with one another, how they uplifted others, how they were generous, those types of things. And so those stories inspired me. You know, they helped me get through those dark times. And so I tried to kind of get that heart piece into this book to share with educators and and people who aren't in education, those of us who are just kind of going through the motions of life, kind of searching for that meaning, kind of in a broken place to kind of reconnect with those things that really matter. You know, the relationships are what it's all about. And I think it's so important because one of the things, particularly today, we are so critical of our school, our school systems, our school teachers. We talk about how our schools are failing, and there's kind of like a real negative attitude, I think, towards schools, uh, elementary, middle school, and even the high school. So this is kind of a refreshing book and a different way of approaching schools and the students and their relationship with their teachers. Yes, absolutely. You know, our school here is not only a model middle school, it's an educator training facility. I think that's why Oprah kind of puts her seal of approval on it because she knows we're trying to share our methods with others to try to have a more far-reaching effect than just the students who go to school here every day. And so educators from all over, they actually come to our school, they sit in our classrooms, they watch us teach, and then hopefully take our methods and ideas back to their classroom so that they can have the same kind of success that we have. So I share all that to tell you that I have, you know, the unique opportunity to interact with thousands of educators a year. You know, in the past seven years, over 22,000 teachers have actually been through the doors of this school to learn from us. And so I think you're very right. There's kind of a spirit of brokenness, of frustration. And, um, you know, I have so many teachers I interact with who want to be the very best teachers they can be. They want to be able to connect with those students. They want to meet their needs. But there's a spirit of brokenness. And it's very hard for a broken adult to help a broken child. And Kim, I'm going to interrupt you now because one of the things you, you just mentioned it, you said your training is unique. Uh, why is your training unique? You know, why are you the only, and it sounds like you're one of the only ones doing what you do and having success and having that connection with your students so that they're successful. So what is it about your school, your less, you know, your mm-hmm. students that makes you unique? 
Well, there's, there's two answers to that. The first is what we do in our classrooms is that we're very big on student engagement, how to get every single child engaged in the learning process. We're very academically rigorous. I mean, we are tough here. We have the highest of expectations for all types of learners. You know, I say, I often tell teachers, if a child learns differently, that doesn't mean you lower expectations. That means you teach them differently. You know, you can't, um, if I tell a child, oh, baby, you, you know, you only have to do this. Well, what I'm really saying to that child is, I don't believe in you. I don't think you can. And so we have high expectations, but we have this climate and culture here that's very big on uh, discipline, manners, respect, very tough, but also full of joy. There's music, there's energy, there's movement, there's all different types of creativity that we instill in our classrooms. And so what makes us unique is that the way we share that. In education, it's, it's kind of sad, but in education, typically educators are just, you know, someone will come in a room and say, teach this way. Rarely do educators ever have the opportunity to step into the classroom and watch other teachers teach. Seems like such a no-brainer, you know. If you're going to become a surgeon, you watch other surgeons in action, you know. And so what we said is, well, what if we create a school where we get the very best master teachers we can find, put them all in one building, and then open our doors and let teachers actually come, sit in our class, and see what does this look like? You know, what does it look like to have every child engaged? What right, are the Tom, tools that's, you're using? that's my question. What does it look like? You talk about student engagement. That's key. Give us an example. Tell me, what is student engagement in your classroom if the te- master teachers are teaching student engagement or they're involved in that? That's so the part kids of- are leaning in. They're watching. They're tracking the teacher. They're tracking each other. When a student speaks, all the students turn to look at that student who's speaking. The students are engaged in the conversation no child is, you know, digging through his book bag while a teacher's talking. No child is, you know, doodling on the notepad. Every child, we like to say no child is invisible. So we teach, you know, on a given day, you'll learn 150 little subtle techniques of how you can do things such as, you know, icon. it sounds so simple, but... As teachers, many times they teach to the blackboard or they teach to the back wall. You know, you need to take the time to look into the eyes of every single learner. You need to be moving throughout the classroom in a very methodical way as far as, you know, making sure you're not just staying in one place. Um, ways that you build the energy of the students, ways that you teach lessons that use movement, ways that you integrate art, lots of songs and chants and, and energy. So many things. And even instilling that creativity. For And we all do that differently because that's what creativity is, but... For example, in my classroom, if you walk in on any given day, um, I'm teaching punctuation, but I've transformed my classroom into an Italian restaurant, and they're punctuating with pasta. Or um, perhaps they are operating on grammarians who've lost their parts of speech, but my classroom looks like a hospital. Or maybe I have a thunderstorm with sound effects, and the kids are doing descriptive writing. And so it's not like that every day, but some of those things I pull that magic in because that's where you kids get the passion for learning, and that's what makes them lifelong learners. So that you're talking about the passion for learning and it's sort of, it sounds magical when you're talking about it because most classrooms, and I think this is unfortunate, is they're routinized. The teacher comes mm-hmm. in and there's a routine and it's the teacher's routine. It's not really engaging with individual students. It's what he or she does every day, right? And that, right. you know, you mentioned teaching the class with your back towards the, the students. Uh, you know, as a social worker, you can't do counseling or therapy with a client if you have their back towards them. Eye contact is critical. It's key. Mm-hmm. And you're only talking about one person. So I'm imagining this teacher in engaging with all of the students in that way um, and, and creating that kind of energy also among the students, I would imagine. Absolutely. And, and some teachers will say, yeah, but I'm tired, I'm overworked, and I agree. There's times I walk in that classroom, look, I drink way too much Diet Coke, I'm going to admit it, but, but, you know, there are times when I am tired and I walk in there and I want to just sit down, but I can't because I've got all 30 sets of eyes looking at me like, what's going to happen today? And so sometimes you have to kind of dig deep and you set the tone. You know, teacher, when we walk in that classroom, the energy that we bring is the energy we get back. And so, you know, I share that with teachers. If, you know, if I come in there, even on the inside, if I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed or tired, if I'm like, guys, I have the most exciting thing to share with you today, well, then they sit forward. You know, they lean into me and they listen. You know, there's, there is a science to teaching, but there's also an art to teaching. And I think that sometimes we're so caught up in the science, which is important, that we lose the artistry of it. And that's where the passion lies. You know, that's where kids, their hearts are in it. That's where they want to read books after they leave your class. And that's where they want to keep studying and researching what you talked about in class because there's that passion, you know, that, that was given when it was being conveyed to them. Kim, do you think that there are people who really shouldn't be teachers? Perhaps academically it, it, it would be fine or intellectually and they have the skills and they have the education, perhaps, but they don't have this other piece that you're talking about and that maybe they shouldn't be teaching and that they really have to be aware of that? 
I, I do think that, yeah. And it's not a real popular answer to probably <laughs> say that. But, you know, and I think that there are some people who have, they still, that doesn't mean you don't have a heart for children. I mean, there are some people who have a tremendous heart for children, so they assume, oh, I should be a teacher. But you know what? There are so many ways that you can meet the needs of children and, and work with children's organizations and programs and things like that. But there is a level that you have to have. Now, you, that doesn't mean we ought to be cookie cutters. You know, when, when teachers come here, for example, Ron Clark, he's very dynamic. He's jumping around on desks. He's rapping. He's, you know, look, not every teacher is going to be comfortable doing that, and you don't have to be. Two doors down is Ms. Barnes, who teaches at my school, and she is an artist and a poet, and she's a photographer, and she's, she's the coolest person I know, but totally different vibe. You know, so you can have your own personality, but whatever personality, it does need to be that personality that's going to draw students into the lesson. You know, you have to know how to weave magic, sort of. You have to know how to, to create that enthusiasm. And some of that does come down to your ability to engage kids with the personality that you may have. I mean, they might all be the same, but you got to be able to have that likability and that ability to bond with kids. And that relationship building is a big part of what I also talk about in the book. So relationship building is obviously in the kinds of school, in, in your school and the relationship that you're your teachers have with your student is, is key, um, and you create that magic in the classroom. But how does that fit with, with, with educators who say, well, you have to prepare the kids to take the test so that they're gonna, your school's going to get accredited, and, you know, there are certain guidelines, and, and teachers seem to, I mean, this is what I hear in the news all the time, and right. teachers are really just focusing on uh, the fact that, or that their, te- that their kids will do well on standardized tests so that the school gets a good score, uh, in, you know, in terms of uh, how well they're functioning. So, how does that fit into your school? Our model? Yeah, yeah your you know, model. Well, we, you know, first of all, our kids do very well on standardized, extremely well on standardized tests, and we're credited. So that helps me to say, look, I have to meet those things too, and these are, these are how we do. But what I tried to explain to teachers is that, you know, look, when we were all kids, most of us probably were good kids. You know, I would go to class, take my notes, go home the night before the test, memorize it, spit it out on the test, and then you dump the knowledge, right? If it wasn't something that you were... If you cared about it, you were connected with it, it didn't remain with you. And I want my kids, when they leave my classroom, to want to know more and more and more and more and more about what I taught them because I've made it like it's the most incredible thing they've ever learned. And so that's where the creativity has to come in. Now, here's where creativity got a bad name in school. Sometimes you had teachers who were creative, but they weren't teaching the content standards you're required to teach. I've got to use creativity to teach what the state says I have to teach. That's how you have to be smart about it, you know, so... So punctuation is something I have to teach. Oh, I'm doing standards when I'm teaching punctuation, but we're doing it in Italian. <laughs> I've just thrown some old tablecloths on table and some Italian music and some pasta, but my kids think all of a sudden I've weaved this magic where we're in an Italian restaurant. So it's how you are able to focus on those standards but do it differently that will make it stay with kids years later. How you, do you interview for your, let's say somebody wants a teaching job at your school, and I'm assuming you probably get lots of applications, and you probably have to turn away a lot of teachers. I mean, mm-hmm. is your process of interviewing and your standards for hiring teachers really different than, say, other schools in, in your district? Yeah, we're, we're tough. Um, one of the things that I think every school should do, um, and it seems very obvious, but we just don't do it because of time and restrictions that we have. You know, we require teachers to send in their application and, and resume and all that, just like any other school. But before I'm going to hire you, I'm going to watch you teach. And so teachers will send teaching videos if their districts allow them to so that I can watch those first. And then I, when I'm watching them, I'm really watching for that connection, not just what the teacher's doing, but how the students are responding to the teacher. But that last step is teacher comes here and spends a day, and I give them a class. I say, you know, you're going to be teaching sixth grade. You can choose the topic. I want you to go in and plan a 30-minute lesson, and I'm going to watch you do it. And that's where you really see, because somebody could have multiple degrees. Somebody could have multiple things on that resume, but that doesn't always make the best teacher. Sometimes the best teacher is that unsung hero, that person who's just kind of behind the scenes who's doing her job every day, and she's the one who comes in and just blows me away. So... I want to see that teacher in action before I actually hire them and see how they interact with my students. Kim, what about salary? Is your salary, do we talk about if we want to get good teachers, uh, then you need to pay them more. Are you paying your teachers more, or is the salary just commensurate with the rest of the salary? Yeah, it's kind of commensurate with everybody else in, you know, in, our, in our metro Atlanta area. I wish that I could pay them. They were so much more. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's tough. I, I, you know, to me, that what, what we do, I, they deserve the world, but it's unfortunately because of our restrictions, too, and the funding that we have, it's, it's pretty much commensurate. So. That's how, did you, I want to get, how did you get into teaching? 
You know, I was one of those kind of, it may not be the most exciting story, but I just loved school. I mean, from the day I was born, I was one of those kids who could not wait to get to school. I just absolutely was loved every aspect of it. And I was blessed with really great teachers. And so I just wanted to spend the most of my life in school. <laughs> so so I, that's where I, you know, I chose my career. I never really doubted it. I never really even thought about doing anything else. I just knew it was going to where I was going to spend the rest of my life. Well, and I think you found the right place, obviously. You have your calling. I can hear it in your voice. I mean, I'm thinking, boy, I'd like to be in your class. I mean, the enthusiasm, I mean, I can hear the, cre- the kind of the creativity is oozing out of you. And you won the Disney American Teacher Award for Outstanding Middle School Humanities Teacher. I mean, you've got all kinds of accolades. It really is impressive. Let's, but let's talk about your most difficult student, because all of these students, you know, as you say, I mean, they're unique, they're different, they're different, they bring different things to the classroom, and so do their parents and the support they get at home. So how does that work? I mean, that's a couple of questions, I guess, but one, the most difficult student that you've been able to maybe turn around, and how do the, how do the parents fit into your teaching model? Well, I will say that, you know, I write very candidly in the book about mistakes I made early in my teaching career with difficult students, you know, just getting frustrated, getting emotional, you know, just not even making it, uh, really just disliking some kids, you know, being honest, and, and, and I'm very, you know, I kind of expose my weaknesses about, I wish I had known this, I wish I had known that. What did I wish I had known? You know, I wish I knew, first of all, when a child is acting in a certain way, it really has anything to do with me. I mean, there are so many levels of pain that could be there, levels of, of you know, failure, things going wrong in the home, that type of thing. And so when a child is acting a certain way, first of all, I don't get emotional and take it personally ever. I think sometimes teachers, they get offended. Oh, he's trying to, you know, get, they get, they get their backs up because they feel like the child is disrespecting them. And, if, you know, the child could be, but it really has nothing to do with that teacher. It's a deeper problem. And I think when you see it through that lens, it gives you, um, you don't get as emotionally involved and you're able to handle it in a calmer, more, um, practical way. I think that I've also learned that you've got to be consistent, 100% consistent with consequences. Those kids who are troublemakers, the biggest way they're going to give you more trouble is if they feel like you treat them differently than somebody else. Like the rules, you, you come down on them harder. And then the third thing is that you've got to find something that child cares about. You know, I talk in the book about I had a student named Jeremy, and I could not get this child to do, I mean, I could not get him engaged. I, I, I had a bag of tricks at that point. No matter what I tried, nothing seemed to get this kid to do his work. I was so frustrated. So I kept him after class one day and I just shared with him. I was real honest. I said, I'm frustrated. I've taught you trying to do everything that the kids love. I've pulled in you know, television shows and sports and music and all these things and nothing is getting you excited. What do you love? And he looked at me and, I, and he said, excuse me. I said, what do you love? And he said, what do I love? And I said, yes, tell me something. He said, well, well I love fishing. I said, okay, thank you. Fishing it is. You can go. He looked at me real strangely. And then that one night, I was like, i got to find a lesson that involves my standards that does fishing. And so <laughs> I went home, and I got paper fish, and I wrote all these words on them, and I put washers on them, and I got string. I had to go to the hardware store, and I got some string and some wooden dowels. And the next day, I brought all the kids in, and we did speed fishing. I mean, I made like this relay thing in the gym, and, and the kid, it was 15 minutes. It took me, honestly, it took me about an hour and a half to, to set up this lesson, which is more than you would want to do on something that was going to take 20 minutes to implement. But I had to realize the investment in that, it lasted for the rest of the year because then he came to me he's like, wow, that was really good. I mean, it showed him, I'm going to keep fighting for you, child. I'm going to do whatever I can do to get you to understand that I want you to learn something. And it totally turned around the dynamic of my relationship with him and how he responded to me in class. So, You know, that reminds me, I mean, in social work, we're taught to meet the client where he or she is, which is mm-hmm. kind of what you're talking about. You meet your students where they are, That's what, and, and you have to be able to connect to where they are at the moment, which is obviously exactly what you did. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's the answer to the first question. Now, the second question, though, but uh, parents, how do they fit into this, this, your model? Mm, well, communication is key, and we work very, very hard to communicate with every parent to kind of explain that, look, this is going to be a tough school. We have huge expectations for your child, but we're in this together. You know, this sometimes in schools it saddens me when you have the teacher versus the parent, and it's not that it has to be a team. So we do a lot of things very early on to establish relationships. I've been to the home of every single child I teach um, just once, and it takes a lot of time, but it's worth it. But when I go, it's not like, oh, I'm checking out your home. It's 
you know, I know you're going to be a very evolved, supportive parent, and so I'm just thanking you ahead of time. I'm coming here to let you know that I'm going to be going above and beyond for your child because I know you are too, and we're a team, and we're in this together. And the student will be sitting there too. Kind of, The kids are usually like, wow, <laughs> never teacher's ever done this. But what it does is it sends that I've already spoken into existence that that parent's going to be supportive, you know, before <laughs> before they've had a chance not to be. And, um, and it kind of changes that dynamic. It also builds this warmth because – you know this from your background. You know, many times those parents who don't come to school, it's not that they don't love their kids. I mean, it's that they may have had negative experiences in school themselves. And, or they don't know what to do because maybe, you know, the child and the academics may be beyond their abilities themselves or they don't, you know, they're just frustrated too. So if I can build that relationship with the parent, just like we do with the kids and meet them where they are, then when there are problems, we approach it in a team way. You know, we're, we're in it together as partners instead of it being, you know, the parent versus the, the, the student and versus me. Another thing that in, this is in family therapy, uh, this is part of the model for family therapy, but if you want to know how, uh, know more about your client and you can learn more about a client by having lunch at their house or a cup mm-hmm. of coffee in their home, than you would in 10 sessions because you you understand the whole operating system of the family once you're once you're there for an hour. So exactly, uh, yeah. So it's kind of the same kind of thing. Are you the only teacher, Kim, in America who goes to the house? <laughs> because most of them I maybe not, they go after there's not. a problem, but you're going beforehand. I go beforehand because yeah. then it's a that develops the bond so that if there's a problem, you know, hey, it's it's going to be. You're going to be able to work it out. And, no, you know, that's one of the things when, when teachers come here for training, there's so many aspects. We talk everything about the classroom teaching, but also about the climate and culture of the school, how we build relationships with parents. There's so many different pieces of things that, that teachers learn. And, and when I say teachers know that I'm speaking about administrators, superintendents, they come as well. And so, I, you know, it's, it's warmed my heart to see that across the country more and more schools, even some really large schools, have found out, you know, how they can take the logistics of this and make it work for them where they can visit their homes of their students as well. And it, it really does. Every single school that has tried it has, you know, written back and said it has a transformative effect on just building a family atmosphere at the school. So why don't we, I mean, you're, you talk about getting praises from, from Oprah, the best school in America. Um, are you out there? Are you in the media so that 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 more people know about you. I mean, obviously, you wrote the book. You're you know you're doing you're on you're on a radio show right now. But still, um, it seems to me you use the word transformative. You have the the ability to transform uh, the, the school systems, middle school particularly, which is very difficult. Or you, yeah, um, and I have a. You know, I'm thinking about one of the things that occurs in middle school often: bullying. Is that something that that um, that you experience in your school or just because of the nature of the model, you don't allow it? Well, I think I would be naive if I said it never happened because yeah. kids are kids, but I would say that it, minimally. I mean, it is very minimal here compared to other, other middle schools. I mean, if we hit, when it happens, kids will tell you that the – matter of fact, they were talking – some kids were talking about the other day to some new kids, and they said, you know what makes Miss Beard angry than anything is never say anything mean about anybody, never be mean to anybody else. That's how you, she's really sweet, but that's when she gets really mad. So they know that that is an expectation that's just not going to fly here, but – to to answer your first question, um, well, our school, you know, we are very fortunate that we, we've had a lot of media attention, and over 22,000 teachers have been through this school in seven years. And so we actually are starting to see, you know, whole districts even where they're sending their teachers, and they, you know, one uh, superintendent emailed and said he likened it to a revival <laughs> in his district, which was heartwarming, but just seeing that, you know, how the climate, the culture, the enthusiasm, the excitement for learning has happened. So we've had over 40... Uh, Educators from over 42 states, over 22 countries around the world have actually come to this little tiny warehouse in southeast Atlanta to see what we're doing. So we kind of like to say we're, we're trying to create this revolution in education. You know, we want, we want everybody to understand the power of the teacher in that classroom and the leadership in that building, how powerful and significant it is. Revolution in education. I, I like that. Revolution in education. And I'm going to mention the book once again, Crash Course, The Life Lessons My Students Taught Me. And it's Kim Bearden. Kim, what about, uh, do you have a website that obviously t- uh, expl- talks about what we've been talking about, your book, and, and also uh, other things that you, obviously that you're doing and uh, your teaching program and um, involving other teachers, school districts from around the world, global? Yes, so CrashCourseLessons.com does talk more about the book, CrashCourseLessons.com, and then Ron Clark Academy 
www.thetalkingalternative.com. Talks more about our school. We are actually under construction. We have a brand new website that's launching in two weeks. So if you go on today, it's when we built that uh, website seven years ago, it was cutting edge, but now it is <laughs> totally revamped. But you can still go on and learn more about our educator training programs, how visitors are able to come and sit in our classrooms, how all of that works. Um, in August, I think it's going to be August the 15th, our new website will launch. We'll have even more details and more photographs and more insightful stuff to get, provide even more information. Fantastic. Great having you on the show today. Um, Crash Course, the life lessons my students taught me, Kim Bearden. Uh, you can go to the website, the new website, would you say, in a couple of weeks. So yeah. uh, that, that should be up and running. Thanks so much. Great talking to you today. Thank you so much. You have a great day. Great. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris. Real talk on business and parenthood. Hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, my next guest is Les Stein. Les is author of Education Disrupted, Strategies for Saving Our Failing Schools. Failing schools have become the latest academic cottage industry, and they serve as lightning rods for the controversy that continues to surround the No Child Left Behind Act of 2001. Surprisingly, there are only a handful of books that address the topic of turning around failing schools, and even fewer that provide a meaningful discussion of how individual schools should avoid failure from the outset. Les Stein's new book, Education Disrupted, Strategies for Saving Our Failing Schools, is a hands-on, practical guide for instructional and institutional leaders on how to make a real difference in the success of our nation's schools. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Les. Thank you, Catherine, and thank you very much for having me on the show. I really appreciate this. This is very kind of you. Well, it's great to have you, and I also will mention that you've written for several professional journals and that you are a professor 
Uh, actually, you're a professor at Meredith College, adjunct professor in Raleigh, North Carolina. Oh, I have Southerners on the show today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'm up here in New York. But anyway, so... Professor, Dr. Stein, let's talk about your new book, Education Disrupted Strategies for Saving Our Failing Schools. Well, and I thank you for the opportunity. I, um, I, when I wrote this book, I, um, I was not expecting, first of all, to write the book. I, uh, I originally, I wrote an article for um, Phi Delta Cap'n. It had to do with failing schools and some ideas on what we can do to avoid failure and to understand how to how to identify schools that uh, may be on the verge of failing or may not be performing to to, um, to expectation and um, the article um, once it was published um, uh, about almost two years ago um, I received a notification from a publishing house that said um, would you be interested in turning uh, turning this into a uh, a book this idea into a book and um, Roman and Littlefield Publishing um, was kind enough to uh, to work with me and it took me about a year and a half, I asked my brother, who um, is a professor at Temple University, not in education, he's a uh, business professor, um, but he had uh, worked with me on a couple other projects, and I asked him if he would be willing to um, to assist, along with his daughter, my niece, who is a, um, a graduate of Columbia uh, Teachers College, and has had experiences with uh, schools that were also um, uh, facing difficult challenges, and so she um, she agreed to also work with me on the book. And uh, uh, Les, so- well, she agreed to to work with you on the book. I want to just backtrack a little bit because you said, first of all, the first thing you have to do is identify failing schools, and maybe we can talk about numbers. Sure. I mean, what when we talk about failing schools, I know you've been a. Uh, uh, you were a teacher, a superintendent, uh, a principal, actually, of a K through eight charter school in Raleigh. So you're well aware of of the problems that right. uh, failing schools have. But is there are there statistics in terms of elementary, middle school, high school? How many failing schools do we have, and how do we identify them? Well, and that's see, that's part of the problem. We do have statistics, and uh, we have um, anywhere between fifteen and twenty percent of our schools um, are identified as failure as failing schools. However, a larger number do not pass the um, what we call the muster when it comes to uh, qualifications like the No Child Left Behind, which says that after two or three years of not meeting the metrics uh, of a successful school, you will be on a um, on a watch list, if you will. Um, so there, there are large numbers of schools that don't meet the minimum requirements for what we call success. But um, it, and what are those minimum requirements? Is that that you have to just the kids have to pass or get a certain score on certain yes. uh, tests so that is is that it that identifies? Yeah, and, and, yes, and no child left behind. Uh, passed um, back in 2001 under the, uh, uh, the the second Bush administration, specifically said that if you, um, uh, you what you have to do in order to, to demonstrate success is that every year you have to have a larger number, a higher number of students uh, meet the minimum requirements for, um, for passing their end-of-grade tests. And so that has been a very big challenge for many schools. Uh, the criteria for uh, passing has always also increased with the more uh, with the uh, I- I increased um, uh, difficulty of the of the tests, which are also changing on a regular basis. So th- those are the criteria. And um, so when you have, say, for instance, a school that doesn't pass for two or more years uh, and doesn't meet the minimum requirements, then that school is considered, on paper anyway, is considered failing. Um, yeah, well, and, I think that's the key word, though. You're saying on paper because they may on pass paper, the yes, test. Because one of the things. Exactly, make, Catherine. That's yeah. a great point. Yeah. Because one of the things that um, that I have found is that you don't need to wait for the paper. You don't need to wait for the end of uh, year exam to tell you if a school is failing. You can see that basically by by the looks of the school. Very often, you can tell by the appearance of it, the the culture of the school. When you walk in and you see what the uh, the teachers are doing in their classrooms, and those are some of the things I talk about in the book. Is that we're waiting too too long. We're waiting for the 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 the, the test results to tell us that a school is failing, and obviously they will, but we don't need to wait that long because then you've wasted a full year, and students are now behind, and they're, they're going to start the following year, you know, half a grade or a grade level behind, and that shouldn't happen. Can and we should talk about the culture of the school, because I think culture is really important. So, Les, like, you're, you go into a school, and, and you get a feel for where, and you observe right. for the culture. Now, what would be an example of a school culture that is seems to be a successful school and the culture of a school that isn't. The first thing, Catherine, that I look for is the leadership of the school. 
And that is critical. And I have uh, one chapter dedicated that com- uh, completely to that. Uh, chapter uh, four of the book talks about what kind of leader. And if that leader, first of all, is walking around the school, if that leader is making contact with the students, if that leader is talking to the teachers and asking them for uh, asking them questions about the kind of support they need, and w- is willing to work with them, that's issue number one. The first thing you can tell about a culture is the kind of leader and how supportive that leader is um, uh, to the, for the teachers, for the students, for the parents. The next thing you look for is how, what kind of collaboration and what, what is the attitude amongst the teachers? Are they working with each other? A uh, big thing today is professional learning communities in our schools. Teachers working together to improve the quality of not only their teaching, but the teaching of others and making sure that the school is all on one sheet of paper. Um, so that's issue number two. Are the teachers working together uh, as, a, as a unit? The third thing is, what is the attitude of the students? Do you have a high attrition rate in the school? Um, do you have a, a large number of absences in the school. Schools that have large number of students who are not showing up on a daily basis has a very, very poor culture. T- uh, schools that have a large number of teachers who don't come to work uh, and you need substitutes has a poor culture. All of that is an indicator right up front of the, of the culture or the, 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 the demeanor of the school. And that can be, that's something that a superintendent or the superintendent's um, central office should be able to pick up on almost immediately and determine what do we need to make changes. That, right, we've identified say, the problem. You, you've identified the problem. You're saying, okay, this, now we need to make changes or we find that the culture of the school is not a good one and, and it, this is even before the kids take the test. So what do you do? How do you turn that culture around? I mean, one of the excuses is been, well, this school is, is in a, uh, you know, we're dealing with poverty programs. We're dealing with kids who don't have, you know, schools that are failing because uh, there just isn't enough money to finance the school. Uh, parents aren't interested. Um, and, and those are all the excuses for these kind of poor cultures or kids who can't pass the test. So let's start with that one. I mean, that's an excuse for maybe a not a good and a, a poor culture in a school and the kids aren't producing as they should. So what do you do? How do you change it? How do you turn it around? Well, the first, the first thing, uh, Catherine, is you, you, you said something that, that, that resonates throughout my book, and that is and, and something that a lot of people disagree with, by the way, and something that I've, I've had to debate on a regular basis, and that is that why are you saying that this, these are excuses, they ask me. And uh, you know, one of my points in the book is that we are using some of these social ills as excuses. Now, that does not mean that they're not important. Obviously, I don't, I, I prefer that we didn't have poverty, we didn't have violence, and all the issues that impact on a child's education. But one of the things that I mention in the book, and this is so important to us, and, and unfortunately we don't quite understand it in this country, is that there are some things we cannot control. A school cannot control um, violence at home. It cannot control uh, a child not having enough food at home. And unfortunately, a lot of people are under the assumption that we're not going to solve our educational problems until we solve our social problems. The problem is we can't wait that long, and we need to do something immediately. So to answer your question is, my response is very simple. We need to do everything we possibly can in those six, seven, eight hours that the child is in school. To do that, we need, number one, the best possible teachers. We need the best possible leaders in our school. We need people who are fully committed to giving those children the best possible education while understanding that they are, in fact, um, facing some tremendous challenges, challenges that are not going to be solved by the individual schools or the individual teachers. But if we know who our kids are and if we know where they're coming from and what they need, at the very least, we need to give them a safe haven for those six or seven or eight hours during the day and make them understand that somebody cares about them, somebody is willing to work with them, somebody is willing to, to look out for them, and at the same time teach them. And, and we can give them those six, seven, eight hours in the day, uh, even though they may go back. I'll give you an example. I remember sitting with a, a group of eighth graders. I had a little reading club in my, at, at lunchtime uh, a couple times a week in my office as a school principal. And when we came, came together one day, three of them in Durham, North Carolina, and three of them were saying things like, did you hear all the gunshots? Because they lived in the same neighborhood. Did you, did you hear the gunshots last night? Uh, wh- wh- and, and where do you think they came from? And was anybody hurt? These, I knew these children were concerned, these eighth graders, uh, many of whom were well beyond eighth grade age, 
One of them was 16 years old in eighth grade. Um, but I, 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 was, I was proud of the fact that he was still in school and, and, and later went to high school. But the point is that, you know, I, 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 I took that into consideration. We talked a little bit about that. And then we went on to discuss the book that we were all uh, reading and, uh, and went on. We have to continue uh, with the process of educating our kids, even though we fully understand that, that there are challenges that these children face. And yes. to do that, we need the best possible teachers, the best possible leaders in our schools, and well, we need to create an environment. The next question, because you're talking about these kids face challenges. Okay, so be it. They do. But that doesn't negate them having a good experience in school. Or, exactly. And, yeah. And, but we, given that we do understand with the challenges they are facing at home. But now you're talking about challenges for teachers, because as I understand it, and you point out in the book, that teacher education is crucial for achieving these goals, for edu- our, the educational goals that you've been talking about, but that the teacher preparation programs that we have now aren't good. They're kind of broken. They needed to be, need to be fixed. Talk about that. Explain to us why are they broken why do they need to be fixed so that you can achieve these goals with the students. Well, thank you. Thank you for offering me the opportunity to talk about that because this is one of the critical issues that I believe we're facing in education today. And unfortunately, it's another issue where I feel that uh, in the ivory towers of our school, of our colleges and universities, this has been overlooked because we've been doing the same thing, Catherine, for decades, decades upon decades. Um, and what, what's happening in our colleges and universities is that we're not changing. We're not, we're, not, uh, we're not adjusting to the needs of our society. And so what happens is that we have uh, students who come, who graduate from high school, go to college, say they want to be teachers, and then basically what happens is you take your first three years uh, uh, core classes, electives, uh, a little bit of tutoring here and there, maybe with a local school system, uh, and then you do your student teaching, your internship, and then you throw these uh, young uh, 18, oh, I'm sorry, 22-year-olds uh, into a school, and the first thing I hear from some of these uh, recently graduated uh, students and, and first-year, second-year experienced teachers is that I was thrown into the briar patch. I mean, I didn't know what was happening. It hit me like a, a bucket of cold water. My point in the book, and, and one of the things I try to mention, especially toward the end, is that we need to do, we need to change the way we do business. We need to understand that we have not been producing and, and graduating the best quality teachers, primarily because we're not identifying the, the specific needs of our schools. The first thing we need to do is allow our students who want to be teachers to experience what a school culture and a schoolroom uh, and a schoolhouse really looks like. And we, we're not doing that. And that's why these students have, uh, are, so, are so shocked when they first begin their teaching experience. And so the, the suggestion, the recommendation that I make is, from day one, the day they are from their freshman year, or at the t- at the time they first identify their their desire to be a, a future teacher, put them in a school. Let them experience every aspect of a school. Let them work with teachers as as aides. Let them work in the cafeteria. Let them work in the um, in the physical education um, uh, classrooms. Let them be. Let them work with the school t- uh, secretary, so they can see what happens. They don't have internship programs like as a social worker. When you're getting your master's in social work, you have to do an internship. Let's say if you're going to do hospital social work or you're going to do social work in a school system, whatever it is. So they don't have the same thing. For teachers, automatic. Yeah. Catherine, in most college, in most universities, they do not. There are a few that are really kind of trendsetters. Uh, the Peabody School of Education at the Vanderbilt uh, University, for instance, does do that. Seven to eight hundred hours are expected in internship before you can graduate with your teaching uh, certificate. Uh, but that is not a common. Uh, I can tell you that the majority. I, I can't say a percentage, but I would probably say it's an overwhelming number of colleges simply go through the three years of limited experience, a little bit of tutoring, uh, let them, the students experience what it's like to work one-on-one with a student for maybe six, seven, eight hours um, uh, in a semester. But the, 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 the big issue for them is the internship, which happens at the end, uh, the last year of school, for about uh, 10 weeks, 11 weeks. And then their last uh, semester is kind of wrap up and talk about some of the, the strategies and ideas. And then, of course, you start your first year. So, no, unfortunately, we do not have that. And that is something that is critically needed in our educational system today, especially in preparing the teachers, uh, the students, to become um, our future teachers. And, and we don't have that. And also, Catherine, I would add that 
very often we also don't have, and this is a very sore subject, and, and it's a very sensitive subject for me, um, we also don't do a very good job of selecting those teachers. Um, very, uh, you know, right now, unfortunately, and, and again, very sensitive issue, um, we don't, the cream of the crop of, of our high school graduates, not to mention our college graduates, are not the ones who are entering the teaching profession. And so now, is that to... because of financial reasons? I mean, that's the one you hear in the media all the time. Well, we don't pay teachers enough, so the cream of the crop doesn't, they don't want to be teachers. They want to make money. They want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a business person. But if we paid our teachers more, then we would get better teachers. Is, is that part of the problem? And, and that is part of the problem. However, many states, states like Pennsylvania, states like New Jersey, states like Massachusetts, have in fact done a great deal to improve the quality of, of the salaries of our teachers. And so I, I don't know if we can use that as, a, as, a, as an ongoing example or as, a, as an excuse, uh, because it doesn't apply across the nation. Now, yes, it does apply to a lot of states, and I think they need to take it more seriously, and, and many of them really don't. And I, I'll, I'll be the first to say that I've worked with many, many southern states especially that um, do not take education seriously, and therefore their teachers are not uh, compensated adequately. And so you can expect that uh, you're probably not going to get the, 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 the best and brightest. But we need to, that's where we need to put our money. And one of the other issues that many people have asked me about is, you know, uh, is, why, why, aren't you, why, why do you say that money is not the answer? Well, very often what we use money for, what we use our, our resources for in, in improving our educational system is not where we need. If we can, if we use our money, it should probably be more than anywhere else. It should be uh, to help improve the, uh, the salary scales of our teachers. And, yes, that would make a difference. But to be honest with you, I don't know if some of these teachers would, some of the people would really, would make that much of a difference. I'm not, I'm not all that certain. Um, I don't but you, have don't research. Money, Les, you don't think that money is the only issue. It's part of the problem. But right. there are other reasons why, and you, you, meant, you say the word cream of the crop, right. uh, the very high-functioning students don't go into teaching. Um, what would be some of the other reasons besides financial? Well, you know, a lot of it is they don't want to deal with the, uh, the, the difficulties associated with teaching. They don't want to deal with parents. They don't want to deal with um, students who have behavioral issues. Uh, many of them do not want to deal with um, urban school systems that, where the, the need is greatest. Um, but at the same time, Catherine, I'll tell you, we have programs like, and I'm sure you're familiar with Teach for America, where we have people who do want to make a difference. And so you are finding the cream of the crop because these, these people, these young people, have a social, are socially conscious. They want to make a difference. So you, there are examples um, where you have uh, young people at the age of 19, 20 who say, I'm going to dedicate my life uh, to teaching or at least a part of my life, uh, maybe the first five, six, eight years to give back. And so we're finding that many of those students uh, teachers are, in fact, doing what they need to do, and they're, they're demonstrating that they are, in fact, having success because um, they are the, the, the students. Now, these, those are the students that, that did have um, the higher SAT scores, and they were in the top uh, 8 10% of their high school graduating class. Um, unfortunately, though, the, the others are not, and I, I believe that we have enough individuals at the age of 18, 19, and 20 in this country that if we look hard enough, we can find those who are really wanting to make a difference. And I've, I've, I've seen them. Um, well, you know, you mentioned the word socially conscious, and I'm kind of yes. honing in on that, because I think what we tend to do, or at least what I see, particularly in the media, is social, socially conscious students, we make it sexier maybe to go to a different country. And to, not that one shouldn't do that, but to have experiences doing other things besides teaching if you are socially conscious. And maybe they don't connect being socially conscious with being a teacher. Sure. And that's probably, that, that's very true. That's that's actually a, that, that's a great point, Catherine. Um, but I, but at the same time, I don't think we do a good enough job um, in in the, in, in the um, in social in the social media and um, in our high schools of showing the students that this is in fact a way for you to make a significant difference, not only in your community but to our country as a whole. Um, many of those that I have in my college classes understand that. And I ask them, why do you want to be a teacher? And most of them will tell you, I simply want to make a difference. I simply want to have uh, an opportunity to, to, show, uh, to, to, to show students that they have, there is a future. And I want to work in an urban school setting. Many of them will tell me. Um, and I'll say, well, you know, you're not going to be compensated very well. It's interesting that I find that many of them um, are willing to, 
to sacrifice in order to make a, a difference, even though they know that um, the challenges will be great. And so I, I think they're out there. I think it's a question of, of locating them, doing a good enough job in our high school, um, high schools uh, where the counselors talk to students and, and sell the idea of teaching. Um, and yes, of course, salaries are always going to be an issue. But at the same time, we have, especially in our society today, uh, where social consciousness and, and making a difference in our society is, is very important. Uh, people understand what that means. And um, I, think there, I think we have students who are willing to go that extra mile if somebody takes the time to explain to them that we need you. We want you in our classrooms. We need you in our, uh, in our most desperate schools, the ones where these kids are otherwise going to go in the wrong direction if, uh, if, we, if they don't have the right mentorship and the right example. And so one of the things we talk about is, so how do you do that? And, um, and, and at the same time, you know, you have to have, you have, to have teachers who who care about their students, and we talk. I talk about that in Chapter Five of the book, where um, you know it's not a question of knowing the content of the subject that you're teaching. It's a question of how are you, in, how involved are you in the life of the student? How engaged and, are you with your student? That's critical. Exactly. And I think the last point, because we only have a couple minutes left, literally. Sure. But I, you know, all of this can't really work out unless you have, and you mentioned this in the book, effective management, effective right. management. You have to be able to manage, this, uh, you know, whether it's the, the, the school, the principal, the teachers, the superintendent, because if you don't do that, none of this is going to work, and I'm not so sure they really address that well in our school systems. You know, how about a couple comments on that, and then we have to say goodbye, but... Uh, yeah. Well, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about that because I will say, Catherine, I, I, I agree with your word, the word you used, management, but let me sh- let's change that. Let's stick with the word leadership. I, I think there's a very big difference between managing and leading. And one of the things I tell my teachers as a school principal, I, I would tell them, we, we don't need to manage our kids. We need to lead them. Our children need to know that their teachers have a vision, and, and that they're looking to the future, their future, the, the children's future, and, and that's leadership. And leadership at the school level, where you're leading your teachers and you're leading your students, and leadership in the classroom level, where you're, you're showing your, your students that the future is what it's all about. And, and how do you get them to that level? So very often we do use the term management. I like to use leadership because leadership is what it's all about. And that means that you have a vision. You have, a, you have a, 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 an outlook for the future, and that's what our students today need. They need to have someone in front of them teaching them who they know has a vision for them, that, that knows that this is where they're going to go. They're not going to be on the streets. They're not going to sell drugs. They're not going to steal cars. They are going to be professionals, and they're going to be dedicated members of our society, making hopefully the same kind of difference that some of these great teachers could make, uh, will make, uh, that, that, that are uh, working with them. Uh, that's what we want to sell. We want to sell the leadership idea, and it's all about leadership when it comes to school, uh, the students, the classrooms, uh, the, the, the full gamut of what we're doing in education. It well, comes down to leadership. Let's sign. I just want to let professor, teacher, and leader, and author of Education Disrupted Strategies for Saving Our Failing Schools, where can we go online, website to, ter- to go to for more information about what we've been talking about today and about your book? Well, unfortunately, I do not have a website. I have not, I've never thought I would, uh, for, for one thing, I never thought I'd get on the Catherine Zock Show, so this is a big deal for me, um, and I've never really developed a website, but um, my, my email address is, uh, is available uh, if you want me to tell them what that is. And well, if you're sure I, you want to, this is global. When you give out your email address, everybody has access to it around the world, so that's up to you, but I do want to warn you. <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm a retired Marine. We, we didn't get into that, and it's not important. I'm a retired colonel in the United States Marine Corps, so my email address is L, for my first initial, uh, for less, Marine at bellsouth.net, and I welcome anybody and anyone who wants to talk about this. Uh, Great. And thank you. I hate to interrupt you, but they're going to cut us off, but thank you right. so much, Les. Les Stein, Education Disrupted Strategies for Saving Our Failing Schools. Hope you enjoyed this show today. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.